Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Bruce. And I'm Josh, and we're your farm management hosts. Let's get started. Josh, it's been cold here in Ohio, like much of the Midwest. What kept you warm and what kind of activities did you find yourself doing outdoors? The Thursday night before we got all the storm, we had our Jackson PAT here going over our recertification. I had some guys from Lawrence County and they were like, come on, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here because the storm was moving up from the south and moving up towards Jackson. So through that storm, we got about three to four inches. So we had the kids in the neighborhood. They were out playing in the snow, having a good old time. So we got a decent amount of snow. How did the northwest corner do up there, Bruce? Boy, we had a slushy mess to start with and my driveway. So I got home late on a Friday and it already gotten dark. So I didn't plow the slush. But then by next morning, it was like nine degrees. And so I had pinball ruts, meaning when I was trying to drink my coffee and drive down the driveway, it was like, I was a pinball in a pinball machine and it was rough. It was brutal. Another thing about winter time, farmers don't like it when we in extension cancel meetings because to have a snowy event and have a reason to go out and drive in snow, I think that just motivates farmers to go to that meeting. So I think that's kind of a fun time of year. And I've gotten in more trouble with my farmers when I cancel a winter meeting because of, you know, bad weather than just having the meeting and guys just and guys and farmers and gals just getting there and just enjoying that wintertime meeting. So, yep, off and running and a great time of year for the winter. So who do we got this week, Josh, as our guest? Speaking of farmers, we actually have uh, beef farmers, and I've heard beef farmers, they like the snow the best whenever they're out tending to their livestock. But we have Dirk Dempsey. Dirk Dempsey, he's the Pike County A&R educator. Dirk lives on his family-owned farm where he does a variety of things. But we'll go ahead and let Dirk introduce himself. So, Dirk, welcome. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. I really appreciate the opportunity to join you today. But yeah, snowy weather, that's definitely the most time of the fun that we have, isn't it? Going out and chipping out ice out of the water tanks and trying to get equipment to start when it doesn't want to start. It's definitely a blast. So Dirk, can you explain the background of kind of your operation? I know you have a family-owned operation going on and kind of some of the stuff you do out there. Primarily, our operation is based on the cow-calf side of the beef operation. So everything is centered based on cows and calves. So how do we market those livestock that we have on the farm? However, there's a couple offshoots that go into marketing for our operation, and one of those involves forage production. And so with that, we've actually developed kind of a specialty market in terms of alfalfa and alfalfa orchard grass production and marketing some straw from the wheat production on the side of the operation. Dirk, some of your history. So go back in time a little bit and talk about the history of the operation, where it's been, and kind of maybe what are some of those lessons learned from understanding the history of where your farm comes from? That's a great question, Bruce. So one of the neat things that my father and I have went through and found out, I'm the eighth generation on the farm. So, and that farm's not the Dempsey farm. It actually would be considered the Horton family farm. So with that, we've tracked that down to almost 200 years of operation in the same township in Jackson County, and that's in Jefferson Township. So being in that township for that long, you you go through the history and find out what your ancestors were doing. And the last iteration of the farm, it was the Hortondale Fruit Farm, named after my grandfather and his brother Horton, which is interesting. So Horton and Dale had two different philosophies. And one of those being in Jackson County, the county of apples. So the, the farm was traditionally an apple orchard. They had apples, peaches, and a few of those tart cherry trees back in the day. 
And in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the profitability from those orchard trees was significant because of uh, supply that they had and that the demand was huge in terms of delivering to regional markets. One of those newer markets being established was Big Bear Grocery Store Chain, which is no longer in existence. So that's just kind of some of the history in terms of how that was going in terms of tradition. And then moving from the 70s to the 90s became a time of change on the operation. My grandfather, Dale, he decided that Hereford cattle was the way that he wanted to go farming. And so it became a struggle between Dale and Horton figuring out who was more profitable. So one of the ways that they went to figure that out was they split the farm into puzzle pieces. And when you go to split a farm that's nearly a thousand acres into a puzzle piece, well, how does that happen, Bruce? Well, as you can imagine with an orchard, we got all the orchard was on top of the hills and all the cattle got to graze the bottom ground. So a few years pass and few profitability years for both of them pass. And then as you start to imagine, as temperatures change, as years change, if you go back and look at the data, what started to happen more often in Southern Ohio, we had more of those early frosts come in and get the trees in springtime. So Horton suffered some significant downsides of not having a marketable crop to go through and sell at the fall time. Meanwhile, the cattle up until the 80s were starting to be really profitable. Then as you get farther and you're looking at the farm economy in the late 80s, you can tell that interest rates were high and things were challenging. And that's kind of when Horton decided, okay, Dale, this orchard business isn't as profitable as I thought it was. And Dale actually started to buy more of the farm back away from Horton, considered it was split. It was still within the same family. And subsequently, I was born in 1993. That was Horton's last year on earth. He passed away that year, and that's when my grandfather and my dad bought the rest of the operation away from his side. By the end of the 90s, my father had planted up almost every tree that was left from the orchard to move into more of the forage production, therefore the alfalfa and orchard grass that I mentioned earlier, and had expanded the beef side of the operation, having up to and around 200 cows, mama cows, every year. Dirk, it sounds like your family has been marketing gurus throughout the year, you know? It just came from circumstance with the changing environment. They had to switch from fruit trees to more of a livestock background. Today, what products are you mainly marketing on your operation? I know you said forages and beef. Kind of talk through a little bit of what's marketed. Things that are marketed on our operation. I graduated from the Ohio State University in 2016. We were direct marketing maybe five or six, you know, half a dozen freezer beef a year in terms of selling beef off the farm, with our main focus being selling feeder calves. And then we got a call that one of our neighbors had started selling all-natural beef to an outlet over on the East Coast. So we contacted them and had a meeting, and we decided we were going to sell two semi-loads or two pot loads of finished fat cattle to this outfit. And that was great for a couple of years until we started realizing that there might be something that we could do to expand our profitability margin, and that would be to sell direct to consumer. Around that 2017-2018 window, I said, well, we're selling these two semi-loads a year. We could go ahead and we could start marketing on Facebook. Uh, in 2016, that last year that I was at Ohio State for my undergrad degree, I had took a class and had communication about online presence to where we learned to develop a website and social media presence. And so with that, I had developed a Facebook page. But that's kind of the precipice of developing that marketing strategy. 
for direct to consumer and where all of the consumers seem to be. And then as we keep going on, COVID happened and it was it was a scary time because of supply issues. So the supply issues at the chain stores and grocery stores had people calling us say, hey, we hear you sell a few freezer beef. Could we get an order for freezer beef? And so I start placing appointments at the local butcher shop. And then before that, even come to realize that the butcher shop was booked out in more than a few months when I could just call before and it would be, oh, you can have a spot in 10 days. And so I went ahead and I had booked my appointments at the local butcher shop for the next year. I went ahead and I booked five freezer beef for every month. That's 60 freezer beef for an entire year. And during COVID, I sold 60 freezer beef that first year. And that's kind of one of the ways that I started direct marketing my freezer beef in terms of gathering customers on social media, having that website presence. And then with that, we went ahead and started marketing more of our alfalfa orchard grass products too. So that's based off where I live. So where I happen to live, I happen to be surrounded by a population that doesn't use our traditional diesel vehicles or gasoline vehicles. They're strictly horsepower. By horsepower, I mean equine. So when we have equine-powered vehicles, they got to have some sort of fuel, right? So their fuel choice is alfalfa-based forage. And that kind of developed as a niche for us to sell those small square bales to the population that live around me. And I didn't really have to go very far to deliver them either. So input cost was lower for me in terms of making that a marketable product. We've expanded our sales of alfalfa, small orchard grass bales as well. We even have, based on our ability, an ease of use is to market those large five foot by six foot round bales of hay to those populations as well, just for ease of handling too. But yeah, just to kind of summarize that, both of those products, you know, forage and beef, use direct-to-consumer marketing. And that's kind of the majority of our business model right now. So Dirk, you've spoken already about relationships, people, markets, locations. And so you described the OSU course you took and getting your brand or your name and that marketing. And and what did that look like, uh, that marketing plan that really started putting your product out there so people even knew you existed, you and your farm existed and had something for sale when they needed it? So going all the way back to 2016, and that does not seem like it's been that many years ago, uh, that class taught me one thing. If you have a business name or a business opportunity to name it, you need to make sure you can buy that website for it or the website domain name because our farm name actually wasn't available. I had to add a couple modifiers to that domain name to actually get a website. And having that website presence helps the people that use the search engines to find information. Is it sound kind of costly? I mean, is that a point where people say, well, boy, that's got to be expensive. What kind of reservations did you have by making that jump? It's a long-term investment in terms of buying that domain name because you're paying an upfront cost and then a yearly annual fee. And then on top of that, just to have the name, you have to pay a host server to actually have all of your content on that platform. So you're making a long-term investment in your business and operation just to have that presence online for customers to be able to find you. Some of these social media platforms are free until you go to buy different ads. Most of what I've built in terms of my following 
going on my Facebook page has been built organically or without ads. However, during COVID, after that first year that I sold 60 freezer beef throughout the year and sold quite a few of those alfalfa orchard grass bales of hay, we went through and I thought it would be a good idea to do one yearly Facebook ad. And we actually did that at the beginning of that year in 2021. So at the very beginning of the year, what do people do? They make New Year's resolutions and or goals. And that was kind of a component of that marketing for us on social media. And I put out there that we're taking orders for freezer beef for the upcoming year. You call in, you could get on our, our wait list, and you could go ahead and place that order for a quarter, half, or whole beef. And what that did was it took that already, that nice organic audience that we built up and added to it. And so we were able to take in individuals that necessarily weren't within two hours of our reach. I ended up with customers from that state up north all the way down to Virginia and then out as far as west as Illinois. That's a long way to travel just to buy beef, but I've been able to be lucky to actually retain those customers based on the quality that they received from what started out as a simple ad on social media. So Dirk, it, was it early onsets of your success and the trajectory that you're on with this business? Was it one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, talking with them? And when did it flip to more of that social media? When did you know that, gosh, I'm getting traction with these personal relationships. Now I'm getting traction with the social media aspect. When did that switch flip? So that's an interesting question because you can go into this operation and I spent a lot of time on the phone answering a lot of the same questions. What's this going to cost me is typically being one of the biggest questions. Then the questions would delve into, well, what do I get for my money? And so I like to be transparent as possible. Being that person and having that platform, I was able to go through and then I had access to a platform that you could go and make little banners with. So utilizing banners on Facebook, you could have this colorful post. It wasn't just a, a blob of words. It was all wrote out. On a quarter of a beef, you're going to get this many pounds. This is what your cuts of beef are going to look like if you go with the standard package. These are the steaks, the name of the steaks that you're going to have. And this is approximately how many pounds of hamburger that you'll have. And as that went on, that started to be more online questions instead of phone calls. So can I get this additional product from your beef rather than steaks, hamburgers, and roast? Can your butcher shop that you work with give us the tallow? Can we get the bone marrow? Additional products that I didn't necessarily benefit from selling, but the butcher shop that I had the relationship with was able to then upcharge them and build them as a customer base that they could offer those and sell those and move those instead of those products just being discarded. Dirk, I've been really excited for this podcast, just kind of the topic that we're talking about, because whether we're talking about forages or beef, we're kind of looking at the startup of a small agricultural business and starting to see it grow as it moves on. One way to start seeing a business grow is by keeping good records. How is your record keeping for your operation? Honestly, probably messy. <laughs> but as you get going on with record keeping, you start to develop a system and it can be as simple as what I do, I have the notes app on my iPhone. That is what I keep all of the notes for beef for 2024. In April, this is what so-and-so ordered when they ordered it and what they expect to get. And then even on my wait list for hay, this is an interesting one for record keeping because that year of 2023 that we just went through, where yields weren't exactly what we expected, 
yeah, I have a wait list to probably sell more hay than I could ever produce, but whoever contacted me first on that wait list is typically how we go through an order of selling to our customers. So record keeping, it can be messy at times because there are certain times of the year where you get more calls or texts or even Facebook messages of people wanting to buy a certain product. And unfortunately, as you all know, we can't just sell a whole beef of fillets because there are only a certain number of steaks that we get out of a whole beef. And unfortunately, I can't sell you a whole beef of filet mignons because I would, but I can't. In terms of record keeping, have a system and stick to that system. Don't change midstream. Stay with that record keeping. Mine has worked because it's simple. I now have some record keeping that I do on the cow-calf side of it. It's all on an Excel spreadsheet. When that cow goes through, when she's expected to calve, when she calves, that way I keep track of cycles, knowing that if she's going to have an opportunity to go through and be a profitable cow in the future, what field she was in, in terms of knowing where or what bull she was exposed to, and then understanding how she did with weaning. There's also some animal health issues that we track on our farm too, that we go through and keep track of in our records. So you mentioned your records being a little messy. Whenever I learn stuff, it's usually from my failures. Has there been any moments where you've failed in your record keeping that you've improved? I heard about you went from Apple Notes, and I know you still use them, but also going to that Excel sheet, like you said, being more precise in what you're tracking. One of the biggest nightmares that I have, and I have vivid nightmares sometimes, is having someone show up to pay you for something that you don't have. And so coming up with a way to get rid of and get past that nightmare. Fortunately, I can't say that I've had any failures, but I've had close calls. So one of the things that I go through and I do in terms of record keeping is I build a little bit of a buffer so that if I do happen to make a mistake and I've promised an order, let's just say I promised an order of a quarter of beef, I always have a little bit of give that I should be able to come up with that pretty soon. I've not had that failure yet, but I had a built-in buffer just in case that I did. One of the things that I did in terms of that marketing was I built that buffer in just so I could prevent this, prevent that nightmare from happening. Because this is something that you know I've, I've kind of always struggled with. It gives me a little bit of anxiety saying that I've got all of this beef in the freezer ready for you to pick up. But if I have that ability to say, okay, I can get that extra quarter in on that order, I've not caused an issue. But yeah, being more precise, that gives me some alleviation of that anxiety. And you're able to take that and just sleep a little bit better at night. Dirk, you are an educator at heart and you genuinely love the industry of agriculture. And so part of your role might turn to educating your customers. What would have been maybe a question that has been the most surprising question from a customer that you were glad to explain and to educate them and just to share what they were unaware of. And it was a great question and it was a great teachable moment for you. So other than we can only get fillets, is that what you're asking, Bruce? Uh, <laughs> so a couple of those questions that pop up into my mind are just how long it takes for you to actually get that beef from your farm to the processor, to someone's freezer, then it actually gets to their table. So talking about that process. So you might place an order in January for an appointment that I have in April. Well, you, maybe you've chosen one of the two butcher shops we've worked with. One of them is a little bit faster than the other. So we talk about dry aging and that process. If it has the opportunity to, that carcass has the opportunity to hang just a little bit longer. 
that dry aging process can affect the flavor or tenderness of that product as well. And so educating about dry aging, how that process works. One of the questions was, I want that whole beef in a hamburger. And so naturally being one that likes to ask questions, I said, why? <laughs> Just because I like steak and I like roast. And honestly, one of my favorite cuts of beef is the tongue. And so I like to talk about all those products when we're going through the chart. And they said, well, that's how we buy it from the store. They only have bought hamburger from the store. And this is someone that's a little bit older than myself. And I said, well, do you ever go to a steakhouse or out to a restaurant and get steak? Well, yeah. I said, well, we can get that for you from this. And we, we talked a little bit more and they really liked only certain cuts of steak is what it came down to be. Well, we can do that. We can place the order that you only get your ribeyes. You only get the sirloin steaks that you like. And the rest can then be ground up in hamburger for you to have on the grill during the summer. Well, one of the questions that followed up that was, well, at the steakhouse, they're typically pretty thick, but I don't like to chew that much. I said, okay, they've got options for that too. So what we ended up doing on that conversation was having those steaks cut a little bit smaller. So instead of that being an inch, they ended up going with three quarters of an inch in terms of steak thickness. And different butcher shops obviously have those different options, but a lot of people, they do like the thinner steaks just based on their experience from going to different restaurants, or maybe they'd ordered a freezer beef from another place and it was, it was too tough or too chewy and working with customers to try to educate them on some of their preferences that, oh yeah, there is this option here and what they could actually get in terms of retail products they could have in their freezer ready to go at a moment's notice and have for the family dinner. That's been a real pleasant experience to help someone learn the difference between option A and option B. And they didn't even know that there was an option B. So Dirk, it sounds like you're taking the Burger King method where they can have it their way. Your customers are being able to get their cake and they can eat it too. So what is the best way to retain customers through your business? It's simple, Josh. And it's not just that it's the Burger King motto, but it's delivery. If you actually are able to deliver what you promise, people are happy. One of the ways that we've retained customers is we've got a quality product and we'd say what we mean. If you've ordered that for an April drop-off, I'm going to tell you, this is going to be dropped off on April 12th, for an example. And then that butcher shop will take anywhere from 18 to 24 days on average. And then you should be expecting a phone call. So when you're expecting that phone call, they're going to say, well, you need to pick up that beef by the next Saturday, because that's how that butcher shop likes to operate. And so you've delivered all of the expectations up front. Now you've got expectations. You're hoping for the right outcome for that. So the outcome is a desired product at the right delivery time. And so you've set all that expectation. It's made for you to go through all the outcomes. Sometimes there are things that happen. Appointments get moved. You have to reset expectations. Sometimes there's production issues. It might take longer for those steaks to be cut on the actual processing floor of the butcher shop. And then you've already developed that relationship. We've talked a lot about relationships already that you can go through and you can send a text or have that phone conversation with the client and everything is just normal. I have folks that we just like to check in every now and then. And sometimes you know, they text me during calving season. They'll say, hey, I know you're awake. It's midnight. You're doing your midnight check because we've had that relationship where I've told them. I go out and make midnight checks on the farm during calving season. And so we'll have a little mini conversation over text at midnight. 
And that's not necessarily something they could do with a grocery outlet chain because there's no one to have that relationship with. They're buying indirectly or buying wholesale, whereas they're buying for me, they know me directly and they know that I welcome a conversation any time of the day. So Dirk, educate Josh and I today, or at least me, I shouldn't speak for Josh, educate me a little bit more on profitability. And there's this concept that you have shared with us about central versus satellite storage options. And and honestly, I have no idea what you're talking about. Central versus satellite storage option. How complex or simple is that idea that you're under the category of profitability? So under the category of it being profitable, you need to understand how you operate. And this is more on the forage side of things. I've got multiple barns on different farms where I can store different forages. So I might have a better quality forage in one barn, whereas on the other farm, it might just be simply a grass hay or an alfalfa barn. And so when you're interacting with customers on that side of things, when you're working with trying to place that order for them, you need to understand if they're coming to pick that up or delivery. So if I'm making sure that I'm having to deliver some of this alfalfa hay, I'll probably want to keep that a little closer to where that's being marketed at. So I've got, a, like I said, a couple of different barns that we work with. And on the one that I'm thinking of right now, it's probably more profitable for me to call that a pickup barn. So what that means is I'll have clientele meet me there during that scheduled time. And that's a satellite situation. So that satellite barn is not on the homestead. It's actually on a rented farm that is a couple miles north of the main operation. And when we're working with that satellite operation, it's typically going to be for the clientele that are near that area that will go pick it up. Or if we have, like I said, we might make some deliveries in terms of hay. That could be kept on the home farm or the central storage option that we have on the farm. That way we can go through, if someone needs something really quick late at night, we can make sure that they come swinging by the central operation, the homestead that we're already at anyways, and not have to make a special run up to the satellite farm for them to go and make a pickup late at night, specifically because of lack of lighting or maybe the access isn't as good. Just making sure that we're not spending the extra money burning diesel just to get from one farm to the other just so we can sell one square bale. Because it's not going to be very profitable if I have to make a special trip just to go ahead and place that order for one bale of alfalfa late at night. Equipment costs. You've already mentioned that having those different pickup locations, delivery locations, that saves you a little bit on your diesel costs. What about your equipment costs? How does that play a role in your profitability? So when you're a diverse operation, it takes a lot of equipment to go through and make sure you're successful. So being beef cattle operation, mainly we've got a lot of handling facilities, you know, truck, trailer, we're not in the semi truck level, but we have a bigger truck, a one ton truck. And then you go through and you talk about the specialty equipment that you need for forage production. Start everything from needing a disc or a plow to work up ground to specialty grass seeders. Uh, I've got a brilliant alfalfa drill that we can go through and we can seed alfalfa into the ground. That takes the ground to be worked up or tilled up very finely to get that good seed to soil contact. Then hopefully that alfalfa and grass seed germinates. Now we've got something growing after that fall planting. We can go through in spring. Now we've got to have a mower conditioner and equipment costs on a mower conditioner are growing. We last bought our, our mower conditioner in 2021 during COVID. So as you can imagine, with the grocery store prices increasing during that, equipment prices didn't fare any better. They went up a lot too. So we went and we bought a new mower conditioner 
now we've got our forage mowed and conditioned. So it's been mowed, it's been chopped off at a height of two to three inches, depending on what crop it is. It's conditioned in terms that it's crimped every five or six inches to help speed down the drying time. Another way that we can go through and speed up the drying time is adding in a tether to the operation. So there's another piece of equipment, and that's on day two typically. Then on day three, we can introduce a rake into that forage production cycle where we rake all of that forage into a windrow and we can take a baler over top of it. With that, and I've talked a lot about you know, marketing small square bales. Well, there's a tractor, a baler, and we've got an accumulator too that places those bales into a group of 10. And then in terms of equipment to go through and pick up those groups, I have a specialty loader that goes through and grabs that bundle of 10 bales and puts a piece of twine all the way around it. Then I can stack that on a wagon and take it to our central or satellite storage operation to where I can start to schedule that pickup or delivery or even those Saturdays where I can take and have customers come at a you know stacked or a staggered pickup day to where I'm not making all these special trips just to have one or two days to offload those bales to a customer's trailer or pickup truck for them to take home. All of that works together with scheduling, mention those pickup times and days, and having the equipment necessary to load and move and get all those bales off the field on a, you know, pretty much a synchronized time. Because this process of baling forage, we've got small windows here in Southern Ohio, typically four or five days. If we can get that forage mowed and baled off the field in four days, we're calling that a victory. Dirk, I've heard you use the phrase we, and so I'm going to ask a question about your labor force. And so who makes up the team that is engaged in the production side and then maybe the marketing? Are you a one-man show uh, to get this all done, both on the forage and also on the beef side? How does that all come together? No, I'm very lucky to have my father, who's been in this business for very many years, to be as part of this team. It's my father and I, and that's we. That is who we is. And we, we work a lot together. Not as much since I started this role as extension, but every day I'm spending time on the farm with him. Weekends are fun. We work together in terms of developing all these plans for the farm's success. So in terms of when it's time for breeding season, I'll work with my dad and he'll develop a plan. It's like in terms of developing an outcome of when we want those cows to be bred, then we'll implement a strategy. Say we might want to think about natural breeding and having a bull in place by this date, or maybe we're gonna think about an opportunity to introduce artificial insemination and bring in outside genetics that we might not necessarily have the opportunity to afford otherwise. That's kind of how we work together. We'll develop a brainstorm and take those ideas and make them into reality. Dirk, where does tradition come into play for the farm? You talk about a multi-generational family business. Talk to us a little bit about tradition. So being that eighth generation to be on the farm and just having my daughter last year in 2023, the ninth generation being born, it's uh, it really hits home as you start to, I turned 30 last year. Gosh, that seems old to me. But when we're thinking about tradition, we're remembering, like we talked about at the beginning of this, where we came from, how the farm was an orchard, and now it's primarily a beef cattle operation. Well, by the time my daughter is 30, what will that look like? We'll be a 
at the farm over 200 years in age by the time she takes the reins. And we're looking forward to seeing what we go through in the next few years until she gets to that age that she's went through and feels comfortable managing a farm. That's building tradition and one that you know, is sustainable. It might not look the same as it does today in terms of marketing direct to consumer. It could go back to more of that wholesale outlook, or it could go even farther into the delves of that direct to consumer by offering a more diverse product bank too. So the tradition of our operation, I look forward to seeing how that continues to grow and, and thrive over the next many years. Dirk, what's one last piece of advice for anyone that's listening that would be interested and trying to make that jump into starting their own business, whether that's something small on the farm, whether they can branch out and do something else. Try it. One of the things that my wife and I do as a partnership off the farm is we decided we wanted to sell lambs direct to 4-Hers and FFA exhibitors. So we decided that we were going to try that this past year. In terms of learning, uh, that's a whole different ballgame in terms of growing beef cattle to growing sheep on the farm. So we've learned a lot, but we've tried it. And it's always, that's always the scariest part is trying something new, but go ahead and just put your foot in the door and actually just try it. Don't always try it at a large scale, work your way into it give yourself room to grow. And as you figure out those bumps and bruises, you can easily overcome those bumps and bruises when it's a smaller operation than if you jumped into it and you bought a hundred percent stake in something. It's not always if we are successful. It's a matter of how much time and effort we have to make something successful. So Dirk, related to your forage and your beef enterprises that you've you've gotten established and you've gotten that traction and your customer base, how will you measure success in 2024? So with the way the farm economy is moving, one of the ways that we can measure success is our bottom line. So at the end of 2024, I hope we're in the black and not necessarily in the red due to equipment costs or in our other various input costs that we have on the farm, seed, fertilizer, fuel. So that's one of the ways that we're going to look at success for 2024 is making sure that the farm is profitable and one of the ways that we always measure success is those relationships. So making sure that we're continuing to retain those relationships and build upon those as we go into 2025 is a good way to measure success moving forward. Perfect. Thanks, Dirk, for being a part of the podcast today. We really appreciate your time and giving us your knowledge. Hey, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening today. For more information about farm management tips, be sure to check out the farm office at farmoffice.osu.edu.